Hello, promoters, and welcome to episode 46 of Uncharted Territory. Closing in on a, a monument or, or a milestone for us in terms of episode 52, what will we do then, the year anniversary? When at episode 51. Because <laughs> that's about when we'll determine what's good, what it's going to be. Uh, delighted to be with you all this evening. Got a great show in store for you or this afternoon or this morning, depending upon when you decide to listen to this. And uh, before we get started on our episode tonight, let's go around and check in with the Legends team and get our Grandpa Choco AccuWeather forecast from each member of the team. Tim Dalton, we're going to start with you up in beautiful Buffalo. How are things, sir? Things are going well, Stu. We've got, uh, you know, 70s here in Buffalo. Uh, weather's been pretty, pretty good. Got a little bit of rain this morning, but things cleared up and uh, looking, looking pretty good here for the next few days. We're, we're right around, uh, say, right around normal for this time of year, 75, right around in there. Uh, Humidity is not too bad. So, so things are looking up and I'm excited uh, for our, our topic and, and different uh, reviews this evening. Excellent, sir. I'm moving in. Your weather sounds better than mine. Chad, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing good. It's been a lovely, almost fall-esque kind of day today. It was not super hot. Um, had great weather for Carter's first flag football game last night where we crushed the opposition 34 to 6. My defense just freaking showed up. Three interceptions, one for a pick six. We dominated. I, I heard the other team is actually going to quit flag football because they were so beaten, but no, I'm kidding. Um, we don't even keep score except everybody does keep score. I don't know why they say we don't keep score because the kids keep score. The parents keep score. I don't keep score, but that's what my dad told me the score was. So I'll believe him. Uh, doing good. Ready to go. Glad to be here with all my friends again and just went on a, uh, uh, voyage to, uh, what would that, what would that be called? What, what did I do? I was trying to help that lady citizenship being a yes. neighbor yes pilgrimage was it a pilgrimage it, was, it wasn't really yeah. a pilgrimage no. not down the street no i like pilgrimage oh but i didn't tell you guys so and you guys will have to listen to the end of the episode to figure out what the hell i'm talking about but um <laughs> we're, we're letting you know there's an easter egg coming yes so she said i fell on south second street i'm like oh, okay she, and she said by city hall i'm like oh okay so that's uptown let me paint your picture folks Gilbert, Iowa has about 1,200 citizens as of the last uh, census. Just got the results a couple of days ago, right? Not a large town, right? I got lost because I don't know any of the street names around here except the one I live on because the place is so small. So I go uptown where I thought City Hall was. I'm like, wait a minute, City Hall isn't here anymore. So then I go over to where City Hall is and I'm looking out in the field and I, and I message her and I said, do you mean east of the fire station? She goes, no. That's Southeast Second Street. South Second is South Second is one block long, and it's a one block up the street from my house. It's between my street and the next street to the east. And I got lost. And also, I drove all over hell when I could have just walked my fat ass up the street. But there you go. So, anyways, it's been how's nice. the weather? <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely. Okay, fall ask. You said that so. mid seventies. It's kind of get kind of warm mid eighties for the next week, but you know right. that's okay. We're good. Bye. Sweet, perfect. Corey, how about yourself? I don't know if I can follow that, but uh, uh, weather who here. Can? <laughs> yeah, weather here has also been you know more fall or autumnal. Uh, in the mid seventies uh, down to the sixties at night feels lovely. 
uh, still got the sunshine uh, and but but not quite as humid and beastly hot. So uh, I I would say that autumn is my favorite season just because of the weather and and uh, things like football games and stuff like that. So I am excited for for this time of year and I'm very excited to be back with you promoters to talk to you on this show. Excellent. We uh, had a taste of autumnal, the very nice word there, Corey. We had a taste of that uh, earlier. However, today was a return to 90, but uh, we got a cold front coming through. Tomorrow's going to be upper 70s, a little little better for us. The weekend looks uh, pretty good through then, and then we're back into the freaking 90s because never cools down anymore and it's all over because we're going to hell in a handbasket with global warming. But it's, uh, in any event, I have, it has been better weather than it has been because July and August we just cooked. And I'm de- de- uh, delighted to be with the team here tonight. we got a fun show in, in store for you all. So let's get started uh, with, uh, let's take a look at or a gander at the newest announcement uh, from Legends of Wrestling's September 4-pack. The announcement was made for Doug Summers, which completes the pairing of Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. So I'll just throw it around the room to get reactions on Doug Summers. I personally was excited about that because uh, I remember that tag team from the uh, days of ESPN, AWA on ESPN expressly. So uh, they were a lot of fun for me. Chad, I don't know if you had your hand raised or you were raising the roof, but you can. I was just so excited. I'm so excited to have Doug Summers. I'm so excited to have Doug Summers. I actually over here, you can't see it. It's out of your sight, but over here I have in the AWA Remco ring setup. I have Buddy Rose, Doug Summers, Shawn Michaels, and Marty Jannetty. They're both wearing the AWA tag belts because I bought a lot of them from a dude on Etsy. Um, no, I, it's super cool. The, the worst, not the worst, the hardest thing about Doug Summers is he doesn't have a real consistent finisher. He He's a hard guy to stat finisher-wise. So I, I'm mulling over some options, and I think last week I mentioned that I was working on stats for him, um, but I didn't say who it was. So, yeah, we'll think of some good things. One, one match I saw, he was teaming up in the Mid-South Coliseum with Randy Rose. So there's another tag team you might want to throw at him. So, you know, he's doing kind of his standard move set and then their finish, Randy Rose got on the second buckle and Rose, uh, Summers picked him up in a, uh, the opponent up in a vertical suplex. I'm like, are they going to do a rocker plex? Oh no. He handed him to Randy Rose and he came off the uh, second rope with a power slam like Orton and Slater used to do. And um, I've seen the road warriors do that before um, and midnight express. So that was kind of interesting, but it'll be, it'll be great to have Doug Summers in the game. Very excited about him. Excellent. And I concur. Tim. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think it's really cool. It, it, uh, gives Buddy Rose a tag partner that a lot of people are familiar with from that, that, you know, eighties, nineties kind of, uh, era that, that, uh, it, it seems is, is kind of a very popular, uh, one in the game. So I, I think it's great we got him. I think even though he's you know not the, the biggest name, I think he's kind of a, a really nice fit and a, a great addition uh, and, and kind of a nice piece, even though he didn't have a long stay in, in the Pacific Northwest. He had enough of one that, that uh, I, and, and had that tie in with Buddy. So I think it's a, it's a great fit. Thank you, Tim. I agree with that. Corey, what are your impressions of Mr. Summers? I'm very excited for this. I know promoters have wanted him for a long time since Buddy was in the original black and white set. Um, Chad can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Travis Heckle was also at least partly responsible for Summers getting signed. Yes, that is true. He did sign him. Yes. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you. Travis. 
Yes, thank you, Travis. Uh, that was huge. It's just kind of one of those, uh, you know, pieces of history that you can complete now with Rose and don't forget Sherry Martell, their manageress, as she was announced in the AWA. Uh, you got the whole trio there, so you can uh, relive some matches. You know, don't have the both Midnight Rockers. We have Marty Janetti. Uh, they won the belts from Kurt Hennig and Scott Hall. So you know, you got some random opponents here and there. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this is going to be a fun card. You know, nothing, nothing fancy, but. I think it'll just be fun to have that Rose and Summers team. A lot of promoters, uh, many of whom I wouldn't consider AWA fans, but they just know that Rose and Summers team because of their legacy as AWA champions in 86. And um, it's just cool to see people's uh, reactions to this. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Chad's done some really great research, uh, putting together uh, a card. Like he said, it's kind of kind of hard to study. It's kind of a variety of moves. So uh, I, think, I think the final product will be a great representation of the pretty boy. I agree. And I think this is going to be one of the most fun, more or one of the more fun heel tag teams that we've had. I just, I think they're going to be a blast to play with. Um, both just oozing personality. Uh, Rose and Summers, again, were one of my first memories of AWA on ESPN was watching that particular team. So I'm real excited to get both of them, um, both of them in color and to get Summers in general for the game. We also had some other announcements. So, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I just wanted to throw in one other thing. Um, so I was listening to the uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowden and Barry podcast today, and um, they had uh, George Shire, who's kind of an AWA historian on there, and they were talking about a match with Billy Robinson and Don Morocco against uh, Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes. And they said the referee for that was one um, Mr. Doug Summers. So if you go on YouTube and look up AWA and you can put in 10 6, 73. So October 6, 73, that whole TV show has Doug Summers as the referee. And then there is a clip where there's um, some other guys out there after there's kind of an injury angle. And one of the other guys out there is um, uh, Playboy Buddy Rose as Paul Pershman when he was a referee. Also sitting in the front row, because uh, I have it pulled up right now, right next to him is the Iron Sheik with a nice slicked back kind of hairdo a la the Fonz. <laughs> and then I think you can also see Ken Patera and Ric Flair in the front rowers and they're all just sitting there front row fans watching the matches. So it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so maybe bringing Doug Summers as a special referee first. I don't know. Now, do you think we could get his sister to be their valet? Wasn't his sister, Suzanne Summers, that somebody, no, some, somebody else. Known by the thigh master. Um, that, I yeah. That, yeah. I believe that was her gimmick. When it, was. it was. Oh my gosh, you could have Buddy Rose with the blow away and Doug Summers at oh, the thigh master, and they could be like the body Donnas. Oh, yeah. My God, this shit You got the whole itself. fitness gimmick. That would be that would be good. There you go. I just that's gave good. you all I gave you all the gift of a great angle. That's there you go. You got you got booking booking from us for that'll that'll hold you for probably a good six to eight months. Easily. You're a giver, Chad. I give till it hurts. You do. We also had some other announcements uh, regarding other product lines within the Filsinger Games universe. We had a recent announcement, I guess, tonight of the latest, uh, as we're recording this, this is September 8th, the latest from the Deathmatch set, uh, King Ugly Jeff Cannonball. Uh, anybody heard of Mr. Cannonball? I can't say that I have. That doesn't mean much of anything, but looks like an interesting character. I mean, I'm not much of a deathmatch guy anymore. Ever since like 92 wing, I kind of 
faded out of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, when, I, once I stopped tape trading and, and getting like FMW and Wing, that yeah, kind of, and I'm and now I'm kind of kind of done with it. You know, it's kind of over for me. But yeah, but it's cool that we're getting a lot because it is popular. You know, for a, a niche group of folks and. Um, you know, some of the other names that we have uh, that have been announced, I have heard of, and actually, who is it? Somebody is coming to a show. I'm, I'm kind of excited. The other day, I bought tickets to see Pro Wrestling Revolver, um, which is a fed run by Sammy Callahan, and it comes, they come to Iowa like three or four times a year. Um, and I got tickets to that. I'm going to go see, um, they're running on October 30th. So James Jeffries, Miss Frankie J and I, and Iowa Oaks, Matt Johnson, our good friend. Uh, we're going to go check that out. And there's quite a few guys, like the main event is John Moxley and Sammy Callahan against um, Davey Richards and Eddie Edwards. Um, and yeah, there's quite a few of the indie guys. And um, Alex Cologne from this deathmatch set is going to be on there. And I'm excited because Dan Housen is going to be on the show. So um yeah it'll be that, kind of a fun cool. time yeah i was going through the list of guys and i think there's like six eight guys who are going to be on the show uh jessica havoc um you know six or eight guys from the game they're going to be on the show and i mean i can't remember the last time i went to a show that i wasn't working and you know i say working with air quotes you know obviously being an indie ring announcer but you know just going to a show that i have nothing to do with all i got to do is sit there and watch that's going to be fun time so i'm really looking forward to that and um you know, with a lot of these indie guys, I'm not always familiar with them because most of them aren't Midwest guys, but I look forward to learning more about these guys and I'm, and I'm sure it'll be a cool show or a cool set. Sorry. I know the show is going to be cool, but this will be cool too. Corey. Well, I just wanted to talk about last week's uh, death match announcement. I'll admit, I don't know anything about Jeff Cannonball, but I wanted to talk about Oren Vite with our recording schedule. We didn't get to talk about him before he was announced. And uh, there was some question on his last name. It's Vite, pronounced or rhymes with fight. And, uh, yeah, he's a, a Midwestern guy. Uh, I've gotten to see him on some of the various Twin Cities promotions shows the last few years. I've uh, seen him in person two years ago. Our friend Eli, who runs Midwest All-Star Wrestling, um, their big supercard they do in, um, is called Grand Slam. And I saw Oren wrestle uh, on Grand Slam. He was... Uh, wearing one of the MAW titles. It also had a, a, a deathmatch promotion title from Milwaukee. I don't remember the name of the promotion, but that was kind of when I first learned that he was into deathmatches. Uh, I've not seen him in deathmatches, uh, but as as just a regular worker, he does a great job. He's a great heel. And when names started coming out for this deathmatch set, I was really hoping that he would be part of it. I hadn't talked to Zeke. I hadn't asked him, uh, but Zeke did sign him, and great job once again, Zeke. And uh, I, I was just really excited to see his name as part of this great, as part of this set. Great to have uh, some Midwest representation. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what Zeke does with this card. I know he'll do a great job. So Tim, what are your thoughts on the deathmatch set? Uh, well, like I said, you know, it, it, it's not really my uh, my thing anymore. But I anything we can do to to kind of you know continue to build the brands and and get that stuff out there. I mean, I think it's great. And if these guys, you know, I mean they they're indie guys too, you know, whether, whether I'm a fan or not, I mean, it doesn't matter. There, there's definitely a, a good crowd of people that are into that kind of thing. And I, I, the more we can get the better. So I'm, I'm all in. I think that's great. I, I tend to agree. I mean, with independent wrestling, uh, I look through my stack of cards, 
the other day. And it's, it's pretty remarkable how many independent wrestlers that we have signed or Zeke has signed and, and others that have made a name for themselves, at least on, you know, with AEW or ring of honor. I mean, it's pretty impressive getting these guys earlier on in their career, or maybe when they're working smaller promotions is, is proving to pay off. Um, I think it's pretty cool. The names that we have now on the independent scene that are, um, you can say they've made it if you want to, whether with AEW or, or similar promotions like that. Um, certainly AEW coming off the heels of their latest pay-per-view. We also got uh, a release in the Sentra set. And let me just say, I'm really digging the Sentra set, uh, Mike Molesky set that is being put together. Just some good wrestlers. Uh, we're getting a Paragon version. Paragon was always a favorite of mine. Uh, so to get that version in color is pretty darn cool. And we have a new one named Calamity. Uh, looks like a uh, cousin to, to Crockin with the, uh, with the, with the head. <laughs> He's got hair. He's got hair over his bumps. He, he does have hair. Crockett and Sabre and Grit do not, if memory serves. No. But um, any thoughts on Calamity uh, or just CWF in general? I, I, like I said, it's really shaping up nicely from my point of view. I'm very excited because, yeah, I thought I thought Calamity looks really cool. And the teaser talks about, could he be working with all these different guys? You know, so maybe he's a hitman for hire type gimmick. Um, Paragon, another guy I always loved. So it'll be interesting to see what Mike does with him. And then um, I don't think we talked about Epitome, who was the first guy that was announced. And, and he's getting two cards. He's getting a, a Promoter Prime card and a... Um, card in the future shock set so yeah i'm really excited to see what mike's doing with these guys i love the the multiverse what if type characters i always like that in comic books really digging the marvel what if series that's on um disney plus right now um was a huge fan of the uh dc elseworld series and i'm i'm really excited just looking at calamity right now i'm really excited for him so can't wait to see what Mike has, um, has for us, you know, and that that's what I like about some of these other, you know, we get a, we get a proofread the indie cards and it's not like those are surprised because they're, they're, they're not fictional, but you know, when we get a proofread um, or since we don't proofread the um, champions of the galaxy stuff, or sometimes we're just looking spot checking for, you know, some of the promoter prime cards, you get to see guys, but you don't know their backstory. So I always love seeing Mike's stuff and Rob's stuff, you know, in additions to Tom's stuff, of course, because we don't know what's going on and it's always a surprise. And uh, yeah, Mike's been doing an excellent job so far. So I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I agree. It's kind of got an old school feel to it too, uh, in relation to champions of the galaxy. So I'm really excited for this set. <laughs> hey, I want to talk about calamity. Cause I just thought of another awesome angle. Mike, you can have this Hit for it. free. You don't have to pay me. You don't have to give me a free set. You should have a guy come in with calamity, except we don't like he's a mystery guy and he's got a huge afro. And then later he shaves his head and he turns out he has the bumps too. So he was like a mole in the Titans or something. He could be on the Titans with an afro, shave his head. Oh my God, he's got bumps under there. He was a CTA 102 trader. Boom. Genius. Drop that boom mic. Yeah, I know somebody mentioned uh, the calamity comparison to Kraken and uh, yeah, I definitely see that too in the artwork. So interested to find out the story there. And um, I missed it. If, if uh, somebody mentioned Overkill, the announcement from last week, we didn't really talk about that either. Um, I'm really excited to see what that's about. I always, uh, I think Grant talked about this on his show, or maybe it was Sam, but 
Uh, they talked about how Overkill never really got that singles run. And uh, I'm really interested to see what Mike's got in store for Overkill. I always found him to be an interesting character, a, one of the giants of the Gladiators. And uh, uh, I'm really, really curious to see that card. So I'm uh, excited for the set. A lot, a lot of fun stuff. I forgot about Overkill. That yeah. is exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I don't want to commit heresy, but I think I might have liked that, like the Overkill Thunder Malice team. Don't kill me, folks. But I think I liked them a little bit more than Brute Spike and Massacre. I just yeah. loved Thunder. I loved how Thunder uh, yeah. worked his way Thunder up from great. nothing. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I the even before Thunder got his singles run, I liked the Thunder Overkill pairing just because. Yep. You know, I mean, granted, you know, Massacre and Brute, you had the really power guy in Brute and a little, little more technical guy if you want to say that with massacre but i just felt there was a bigger uh difference in thunder and overkill that worked together overkill being the giant and uh overkill being the giant and thunder being the you know having that high flying move with the leg drop off the top so just a just a cool combination and uh yeah i agree with you chad i i kind of like them a little more malice i mean uh, malice was good too I, i had some good runs with malice but not didn't get into him as much as some of the other gladiators well, again, looking forward to this set. Uh, I like what Mike is doing in mixing new characters as well as giving us characters that maybe got a little bit of a short shrift in terms of their run in the GWF or didn't weren't fully as fully developed or just deserve another chance, like a Paragon, like an Overkill. I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, and, and yes, Paragon happens to be one of my favorites, so I'm a little biased, but it's really cool how he's doing this. And I say, bring it on. It's going to, I'm really looking forward to this set. Uh, next up, I guess, in our semi-main event, we've got a little bit of uh, some questions from a viewer mailbag. Well, the first question comes to us from a loyal listener and fellow podcaster, Grant Pachoco. And his question is, what do you personally do when a wrestler's pin rating reaches 12? And there was some good discussion on the discussion board about this so i'll just throw that out to the group uh what do you guys do and i'll uh, bring up the rear so to speak with my opinions Corey, what do you got well um i'll say it depends on the match honestly um and I've, i think i've talked about this in the discussion board before you know if it's a situation where oh and i and i should give a little backstory in my fed i say that five tokens is blood um so if only one of the wrestlers has blood five or more and, you know, say it's a very lopsided match, you know, I usually ended at 12 and, and that could depend. It could be, you know, kind of an automatic pin once in a while. I'll do the blood stoppage uh, finish just to kind of build to a rematch, if that makes sense, given the wrestlers involved, but say both wrestlers have a lot on them. Well, you know, I'm not going to do blood stoppage when they're both bleeding or if it's tag team match, if multiple guys are bleeding, um, then I would just say, you know, if it's that great of a match and there's a potential to kind of keep it going, I'll say if he can roll a 12, kick out keep the match going but uh usually you know usually if it's if it's lopsided i'll, I'll end the match um kind of what tim was talking about last week on our specialty matches show if it's a specialty match uh and, and especially one like the barbed wire cage or something where there are a lot of add one situations i'll just keep going until it's an actual pin situation and you know usually i might roll for the pin just to see if he get, does get the 12 but um but, you know, normally by that point, that's not going to happen. So I remember that when uh, Tom released the card for, um, I'm going to butcher the guy's name, Valour. 
or Valor or whatever his name is. You know, he had that Valor. Valor is was it Valor? It's been a long time. I don't think it was Valor. Valor would have been great though. I know. I've been a a more interesting character. Velvet. Um, (laughs) But uh, he had the the uh, finisher rating that depended on the opponent's tokens. I believe. I think is what it was. Um, And that was kind of the first time that I can recall where Tom said, "Well, the highest rating could be a plus eleven because at twelve it's automatically pinned." So that was. I, I just remember that little blurb in the handbook and it's like, oh, okay. You know, that would, that had never really been officially written out until then. So that's, yeah. So long, that's my long answer there. Just kind of depends on the match. Thank you, Corey. Tim, what are your thoughts on that? It, kind of the same, kind of the same theory, I guess. I mean, when in the barbed wire cage stuff where there's a, a you know, add ones are flying left and right then I'll usually let it play out like I did with that, that spike injustice match that I talked about that that's probably the most memorable, memorable match in my GWF history. Um, But if it's just a, if it's just a straight on match, unless it's something that you, you just want to be over and it's like, Holy crap, how do I end this thing? And you just say, okay, unable to continue and let it ride. Um, But normally I'll, I'll, I'll let those go. And then if somebody hits 12, I'll uh, I'll consider doing the the uh, the stop there, um, but yeah, the special matches though I, I generally don't. I don't want to. I, I kind of let those continue out because that's kind of the whole point of those is just inflicting damage and doing stuff. So, um, you know, I've had it I've had it happen. I think in multiple falls that I usually kind of let go, uh, just because I'm like, well, there's more than one fall, so we'll because I, I don't reset the pins. I kind of keep the pins going. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it just depends on the circumstance and what's going on in the match and who's involved, at least for, from, from my standpoint. Very well, Tim, and I, I tend to, uh, do the same thing. Chad, what are your thoughts on this, on the dreaded 12 rating when the wrestler reaches that rating? Well, I'm trying to recall that the last time I had a match that went that long with the 12 thing. I know that what some of the folks at Icon do, and I think this might have originated with with Thomas Keen, is if you roll a twelve, it's an automatic reversal. You know, they they yell out box cars, and um, you know, always always do that. I know at one point I had if you always if you rolled a twelve, it was always an automatic kickout because it was just the last ditch heroic effort. Um, these days, I would probably stop the match like maybe on blood or unable to continue just because I tend to run more legend stuff than anything. And that would kind of give it an old school feel. Although of course, like Corey said, if it's a, a double juice or it's a tag match, <laughs> that would be the best. I'm sorry. Back at IPW, we call these fuck finishes where <laughs> it's, a, it's not a, it's a DQ or whatever. That would be the ultimate F finish. If you, uh, you know, stop the match for blood and everybody else is bleeding too. I love that idea. Not to screw the fans, but I just think it's a crazy ass uh, finish that would kind of work and get a little heat. Um, but yeah, I would probably stop it now. But um, like I said, giving a shout out to my friends from Icon who l- love those box cars and that automatic reversal. Great, thank you, Chad. Yeah, I, I tend to resemble uh, what Tim and Corey do. It really depends upon the situation. Uh, if it's a specialty match, I would let it go. And I'm trying to remember. Good gosh, the last time I got a wrestler to a twelve. 
Um, it has happened, and I've never had a wrestler get to a 12 and actually win the match. Uh, usually if they're at the 12, I have not seen that reverse or him, that particular wrestler get on offense and win the bout. So still hoping for that. Great question. Thank you, Grant, for that. Grant had uh, part two, and I believe we're going to cue that one up and listen to that and then comment on that in just a sec. Hello, friends. This is Grant, and I just wanted to take a moment to say hope you're all doing well. Uh, also, Stu, thank you so much for, again, for recommending the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. It is so great. I've been binging it, getting super excited for the sort of Memphis-themed uh, set that is coming out at the end of uh, the year. And uh, as I've been listening, I've been kind of like just making a mental list of uh, people who are mentioned, who have cards in the game, who I might be able to use in sort of a Memphis style. And uh, Jimmy Hart managed Paul Ellering for a while as sort of the new king of wrestling, um, as mentioned on that podcast. And my question is, I know Paul Ellering has a special edition manager card that has wrestling stats. Are those stats on that card um, geared towards where he was sort of in his wrestling prime? Or are those stats more like uh, this is where he was when he would occasionally step into the ring as a manager? Um, because if they're sort of him in his prime, then I might use him in, in sort of the Memphis style way. Uh, anyway, that's it. Thank you so much. Bye. Great. Wonderful. So let's go around the, uh, to the Legends team and comment on this or try to answer this. Is Paul Ellering's card geared toward his wrestling career or his managing stats? Chad, your thoughts, sir? So I remember when we did um, the original stats for Paul Ellering when he was a manager in black and white, and I don't think the color ones are that far off the mark, are they, Corey? Dramatic no. pause. No. no. Okay. I'm looking for my card. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, there wasn't a ton of footage as I recall at the time, although now with like the mid South stuff on uh, the Peacock, um, we could probably find a little bit more. What I would say to Grant is those stats are definitely more of his manager level, but I think they're pretty accurate for maybe his wrestling career. I don't think he had a real huge move set. I think the finishers that we have came from actually his matches as a wrestler, um, but we just toned it down a bit for him to be a manager. I mean, obviously out of all the managers, he should probably be the best in terms of wrestling as a manager, because I don't, he wasn't that old when he got injured and had to kind of quit managing. I don't think he's that far off. Um, I don't think he was that much older than the road warriors were um, for example. So I guess my my best answer, Grant, would be it would probably be an accurate move set, but you'd almost want to do like a reverse retirement chart, something, and, and beef him up a little bit, make him a little stronger. Wonderful, Corey, Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? Any additional thoughts? Yeah, as I, I just actually was kind of digging for his color card just to remind remind myself of his moves and strength and everything. And you know, you kind of think of it. Chad mentioned, you know, his career was cut short by a knee injury. Um, you know, he worked. Uh, a few of the territories there got pushes for a short time you know obviously memphis with jimmy hart um i think if you take that into account and the the short length of his career his active career at least i think strength wise he's probably pretty close you know maybe you would change a couple moves but um, i feel like he did a bear hug at some point because of his powerhouse gimmick uh we don't i see we don't really have bear hug on the card um 
uh, so, you know, maybe a few, and obviously in the manager card, he's got a tag move on, lo, on level two offense, number six. So that would be something where we'd maybe want to put in something, something there to make him a little more competitive in singles. But overall, I think it's, it's pretty close to how he should be given his achievements in a short career in some of the smaller territories. Good deal. Tim, you have any additional thoughts or? No, I think I would just echo that. I know that, that you know, I think uh, either Chad or Corey, I think Chad did the, the, the research on that, uh, on, on his stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll defer to them since they were the ones that really kind of looked into it. Excellent. Our third question, <clears throat> this comes to us from a loyal listener, JRO7, and it's, it's specifically addressed to Tim. In addition to Destroyer Park Golf and Elios, Elio de Palos, are there other wrestling-related sites to visit in the Buffalo area? So, Tim, take it away, sir. Well, I know that one time Chad and I went on a, a kind of a fruitless search for the uh, Floral Hall, which was an old uh, <laughs> NWF arena in Dunkirk, New York, um, and spent driving around a bunch of dead ends trying to figure out where the Floral Hall was or used to be. Um, but other than that, I, I can't really think of any any wrestling related things off the top of my head. I there is a local promotion around here called Empire State Wrestling that runs occasionally. Um, I believe they're coming coming up next month. Um, I think it's October 10th, and the, the main event is Davy Richards and uh, uh, Dan, Danny Garcia or Daniel Garcia. Mm. Um, so. But, but they, they run around here, and, and uh, so, I mean, that would be something to kind of, you know, throw in the mix as well. Uh, but, but there's a lot to do if you're, uh, you know, non-wrestling, uh, especially if you're visiting during the summer there's, in a, and during a non-pandemic uh, time. It, it seems like during the summer there are, are weekend festivals almost every week i mean there there's the italian festival there's uh, taste of buffalo there's all these different things that happen um you know if you come around uh, dingus day there's always uh, the festivities there uh so um and, and because it's buffalo there's always winter stuff going on too there's we have we have curling we have all kinds of things that you can do uh you know during the winter months as well if you're a, if you're into architecture this is one of the hot architectural cities in the country and uh, we have a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright buildings here so there's there's a lot to do uh, but as far as wrestling related probably uh, the Destroyer Museum slash Destroyer Park Golf and Ilio de Paulo's restaurant are, are probably your best bets. Now we did see the last wrestling show at the uh, at the odd we yeah. were we were there we would, yep, the, the old Memorial Auditorium, which was, uh, which is now, uh, was torn down uh, a, a while after that event. But yeah, they, they did, uh, the, the last show there was an Ilio DiPaolo tribute show uh, where WCW came in. And, and uh, I believe uh, we, st I still have my t-shirt stashed away from that somewhere. But uh, yeah, but that was, that was fun. Uh, but, but yeah, unfortunately the odd is, is no more. Uh, it, it was a big pile of rubble there for a few years and then they rebuilt and, and turned it into a couple of different things. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not aware of any other real uh, big wrestling sites or, or activities in the area. Thank you, Tim. It gives them some flavor at least. Um, 
And now we're going to head into our main event topic for the evening, which is a discussion of something that's near and dear to at least three of us who are relative old farts on this panel. Corey, I'm not lumping you into that, but you are a crack historian of wrestling, so uh, you, you can certainly contribute to this. Uh, it's a discussion of what was once the preeminent booking model um, with, return, with regards to the world champions. Uh, and we're going to narrow this topic down to the three preeminent uh, promotions in the United States, the WWWF slash WWF, NWA, and AWA, with the goal of, in our discussion of each of these promotions or each of these uh, territorial associations, if you want to call it that, with regards to the NWA, uh, trying to pick uh, the greatest of the long-term champions for each, each particular promotion. And that, that may be impossible, but we're going to see if we can give it a whirl. And we're going to start in New York with the WWWF, in which we had essentially three long-term champions, um, beginning with Bruno Sammartino, going to Bob Backlund. Yes, we know Billy Graham was in there, but we're looking at multi-year runs. And then finishing up with Hulk Hogan uh, in his reign in the 1980s. So we had three long-term world champions there who were booked as uh, pretty darn strong baby faces. And that seemed to be the McMahon uh, MO for many, many years, for decades. And let's look at these and see if we can come to some kind of consensus as to which one was the greatest of these particular long champions and their long-term champions. And this may just be a, a matter of individual taste, but we'll, Start the discussion with Tim, since that was in his uh, his backyard, in his wheelhouse, so to speak. Looking at Bruno, Bob Backlund, and Hogan, did you have any particular preference of those three? Well, I guess first of all, just talking about the model, you know, the you know, there's there's kind of two, I guess, big models when it comes to your your champion and challengers. The first one is, uh, you know, if you want your baby faces. Uh, underneath and, and you want them chasing the bad guy, uh, then the chase is the thing. And it's the whole, you know, ooh, did, is he going to get him this this month or this week or whatever the, the cycle was? Um, you know, and you you go through that and the chase is the build. And then then when the baby face finally wins, that's the, the big pop. Uh, the WWWF and the McMahons kind of had a, uh, uh, a model where their thing was to create this monster babyface champion and just feed him heels. So uh, that that was kind of what they did, and they did it with uh, with Bruno. And Bruno wrestled, you know, the pretty much every big name that that you could think of in his era. Backlund the same, and then Hogan when when they went national. They were bringing people in from all these territories to to face him and and kind of went with the the big heel. They they liked the big heel gimmick there. Uh, it was always kind of a big man territory. So even when Backlund, who wasn't the as big and much of a powerhouse as Bruno or Hogan, uh, they would still feed him a lot of the the big heels, the John Studs, the Blackjack Mulligans, you know those types of guys. A lot of those types would be in the mix as well. So, I mean, it, it's difficult. I mean, when you, when you look at them and try and pick one, obviously Backlund was the most, most athletic, probably had the uh, most 
uh, high quality matches, I guess, if you look at it from a work rate standpoint, uh, probably had some of the better opponents to, uh, to, to accomplish that. Um, but then you look at the drawing part of this whole thing. And I mean, that's really the ultimate goal of this, right? The ultimate goal is to put asses in the seats and, and Bruno and Hogan probably did a better job of that than, than, than Bob did. Uh, nothing against Bob. He, he was a good champion as well. So it, it's a, it's a tough call. I mean, it, it really depends on what you're looking at and what you want out of your wrestling matches. I think Bruno had the, the crowd with him just as much as Hogan did. So, you know, they sat on every move and if somebody pulled Bruno's hair, the crowd went ape shit. Um, you know, just like they would, they would go nuts if somebody did something to Hogan or if, if one of the big guys, you know, slammed Hogan or did something crazy. Um, I'm a Bruno guy, you know, so I mean, that, that would kind of be my, uh, my, my take on it. I think he was a, a good combination of, of uh, drawing card personality uh, that the fans just absolutely got behind and believed because he was just such a strong guy that, that, you know, he was just believable that, that he could throw toss these guys around the ring without much of an effort. Um, but it's, it's tough to, to go off Backlund when you're looking for better matches. Cause he, you know, you got opponents like Patera, Morocco, uh, you know, the, the people that they brought in he great matches with Adonis, um, Valentine, Valentine. Yeah. So, um, and then Hogan again, kind of goes back to that model, a little bit more cartoonish, but a, a, a more of a version of Bruno, where it's the big powerhouse guy that it, you know looks unstoppable. So, um, so that's my take. That's kind of my overview, uh, since since it's kind of my home home territory, I guess. So, um, but but you know, I'm I'm definitely kind of, I, I I would lean Bruno. That's, that's awesome, Tim. And, and would you say, though, that Backlund, of the three, probably put the least butts in seats, but he was somewat underrated as a draw? I mean, he could. Absolutely. Put a, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know when, you know, I would go to the shows in Rochester, and I mean, especially during the winter months, because it was, you know, in a colder area, it's a winter territory. People come out because, you know, once, once the summer hits, people want to get outside and do stuff so they don't fill up the arenas as much. But, I mean, Backlund drew pretty well here. I mean, he, he did a great job in Western New York. So, uh, and from other records I can see, he, he did a good job as well in, in the bigger cities, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the garden, Boston, uh, you know, down in DC. But again, you know, that by that point, they had gone to a model where there was more on the card than just the, uh, the main event, which was the title match too. So there was also other stuff. They were running angles, more angles with other people on the cards so that there was more going on just uh, than just the title match, which kind of when, when Bruno was around, he was kind of the, the guy and they just kind of relied on him to draw the house. So, um, but that, that would be my take. But yeah, I, I think Backlund was a very underrated guy. And um that's why I was thrilled when we got him for the game. I, I just thought he's he's spectacular and he's such a good addition. Me too. Corey, what are your thoughts, sir? Well, a question for Tim. I know um, Madison Square Garden, they tended to do this where the world title match was in the middle of the card so that they could announce the rematch for the next month later on the card. Did they do that uh, formula in Rochester? They they. They didn't really do that because even though there was more of a build and you would find stuff out that sometimes what they would do was they would backland would go on last. 
And then uh, what would happen is if there was some kind of a DQ or if they were building to like some kind of a rematch, they, they would have announced matches coming next month already. Mm-hmm. But then like at the end of the show, fans, we've just been, you know, we've just been told that a rematch has been signed. So like as you're getting ready to pack up and, and go out of the arena, they would they would throw that at you. Okay. I will say that um, when I saw Hogan Orndorf in in 86 during their feud um the first show i went to with them hogan orndorff was on last and then about two months later they came back and we got so in august we went because it was my birthday and then in late september early october we went to the show because it was my friend mike's birthday and then it was nobody's birthday so then we never got to see the blow off but for the second show it was in the middle of the card, and then they announced, and it was good old Ken Resnick that next month, right here in the St. Paul Civic Center, inside a 15-foot steel cage, we got Hogan, Hogan and Orndorff. So they were still using that formula, you know, depending on the situation and probably depending on the town, into the you know into the mid 80s, um, and you know, and who knows maybe maybe they jumped on a plane and in St. Paul and, and took that, you know, maybe they went West a couple time zones away to Denver or Portland or somewhere that night too, and, and worked another show. You know, I don't, um, I don't remember what day of the week it was, you know, that kind of thing. But I know that match was, it might've been the match before intermission or the match coming out of intermission. And I vividly remember that, that, you know, ticket announcement and everything um because we were making fun of it on the way home excellent any other thoughts on those three i mean if i if i had to to pick one and i remember reading this about bruno uh he was almost i hesitate to use the word complaining but he was he was uh railing against people saying he worked a very formulaic style punch punch kick kick by saying that's that's what he was fed uh with the uh with the heels and that's what the way the matches were structured and they get into these big feuds and they ended up as brawls but he said he he defended himself by saying he could go when he had the right opponent and i i don't know if i've ever seen a bruno match that i would call a work rate classic um his match against baba that when he goes an hour was a little more of uh what you would call um higher work rate if you want to call it that but I, I, Bruno to me is just so iconic. I, I'm going to put my vote in for Bruno as greatest ever uh, with uh, WWWF slash WWF. Um, and I, I guess a, a narrow edging out just because of uh, what he meant to wrestling in the second boom period to, to Hulk Hogan. Um, just narrowly. I like Bob Backlund better, uh, far better. But I would have to give Hogan the... the the nod over Backlund in terms of just putting fanities in the seats and his impact on the business. Any other thoughts on that particular promotion? Corey, you had your hand raised, sir. I mean, I just have to agree with Bruno. I think, you know, look at the, even back in the days of longer title reigns, I mean, seven and a half years, that's a, that's a long one. You look at the NWA champions that were his contemporaries um, or Vern or any of the other AWA champions of that time frame. I mean, that's a long time. And, uh, you know, that just shows the, 
I mean, obviously the drawing card that he was, and then Vince Sr. didn't want to take the, the belt off of him too soon. And, you know, finally Bruno kind of had to say, you know, I, I need a break. So, yeah. and, just, and just the fact that after Pedro, we didn't really mention Pedro, obviously he didn't have as long as, of a reign as the, as the other three, um, but a good draw in some of those cities, especially, especially New York. Um, but, you know, when his reign was done, you know, where did they go next? They went back to Bruno for a couple of years before Superstar. So I think, yeah, I think it's, you got to go with Bruno. He, he set the trend of the strong baby face champion and yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's hands down got to be Bruno just for the length of the title reign and the number of sellouts and everything. But I thought in, in Meltzer's analysis of the history of the WWF that didn't, did Backlund outdraw, what was, or did he have a higher sellout percentage or something? Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I, I remember that. Ahead, yeah, I, remember, no. I don't remember the, 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 the details of it, but I do remember that, that you could make a case for Backlund as being a much better draw than people thought he was. Yeah. Yeah. And some people will say, well, he had Mil Mascaras and he had Dusty and Andre, um, you know, that it was more of a, a lot more people on the card, but I mean, obviously I'd rather watch Bob Backlund match than a Bruno match because of the stomping and yeah. kicking, but a Bruno's got that huge charisma. And I mean, I don't want to like, you know, I'm not a Hulk Hogan fan, but I will say some of those early matches he had in his reign against guys like the Sheik and Greg Valentine and Magnificent Morocco. And even against John Studd are, are decent matches, you know, but I think a lot of it's due to his opponent, you know? I mean, obviously, Hogan versus John Studd, you can pick who's a better worker than that one. But um, it, it was fun. It was kind of different. Um, and like I said, those Morocco and Valentine matches against Hogan early on in the rain, I thought were pretty good. And Orndorff. I, I, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't think, you know, you can, you can really make a good case for Hogan as well. Um, you know, I guess my thing with Hogan was I, he had a very limited schedule. Uh, so I've always had a little bit of a bias against him only, only because, you know, Backlund would show up every month in Rochester and, and then we had to wait six months to get Hogan uh, there once, once he started. Um, and, and so, and, and, you know, even I think Bruno said, you know, some cities, he just wasn't that big of a draw because you couldn't really do a program with him like you did with, with Bruno where you, you do three matches or two matches, you know, and, and there's the rematch and then there's the blow off. It was basically a one and done with Hogan. And I think in some of the smaller cities too, I think he just went through his eight minute special, what I, as I like to call it, and kind of did his thing, did his, you know, Hulk up, come back, big boot, leg drop, have a nice night, I'm out. Um, but I mean, when you look at the impact on the business that he had at that point and, and you know, the, the kind of draw he was, I mean, that you, you can't deny uh, you know, what, what he was to the business. And I want to say too, and I'm, I'm glad Tim mentioned that about Hogan's schedule. Cause I meant to tie that into Bruno too, that, you know, of those seven years, you know, maybe he wasn't every month, but pretty regularly, a lot more than, than Hogan. And, uh, and then to Chad's point about some of those good Hogan matches early on, um, there's a good one with Orndorff and Orndorff's first heel run before WrestleMania uh, with him and Hogan. It's from, a best of WWF or greatest, greatest title matches um, from Coliseum home video, the tape that Chad and I had, and it's four matches that I would not call the greatest title matches of all time, but, uh, but there's a Hogan Orndorff match from Maple Leaf Garden. And what I, I just remember as a kid watching that and being amazed that Hogan won without the leg drop. Um, 
they do a, if, you know, a spoiler alert from 30 years ago. Um, they do, a, a, Orndorff comes off the top of the flying body press and Hogan rolls through and pins him. And I was just, I remember having seen the Saturday night's main event formula and all that. I was just shocked. I'm like, wait a minute, he can win without the leg drop. <laughs> I forgot about that. Good call, Corey. Thank you. I will say for Hogan, I was amazed the first time I saw his matches in Japan. I'm like, what got into this guy? I mean, that, that was just amazing how different he was over there. I mean, was he Luthez? No, but he was he was markedly different than what he wrestled or how he wrestled in the States. Very good, gentlemen. So we're going to, I think we're going to put us down as a consensus Bruno for the greatest ever WWF slash WWF champion. And we're going to move on to uh, the National Wrestling Alliance, which had several long-term champions, uh, more than the WWF did. Um, Fez, Dory Funk, Terry Funk, Briscoe, Flair, Race. I mean, there's a lot of names that we can discuss and debate. And heck, Flair, you could, he would drop the title and get it back. But more or less, he was world champ from 82 to probably the end of the NWA's run as the NWA title in the late or early 90s. Did he lose to Jack Vanino too at one point or is never recognized? I can't remember. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's an iffy one. There was, <laughs> his life was in jeopardy. Yeah. So. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you could say Flair had a nine, 10 year run if you, if you really wanted to look at that last reign uh, short of losing to race to Garvin to Steamboat. But um I'll just throw it out there in general. We'll go around each team member and just get your pick. Uh, if you're looking at all the NWE champs as to who you think is the greatest of all time, there, there are certainly many more to pick from. Um, but I'll uh, start with Chad first and see what your opinions are on that, sir. I would probably throw out Terry Funk and Jack Briscoe just because their reigns weren't as long as the others. Um, and I wish I would have looked at this website ahead of time um if you go to the what's this called the wrestlingtitles.com just google nwa world title defenses um it's a title history page but they also have a record of the nwa world championship matches forever and i've just been kind of scrolling through this and i mean it's kind of the same thing with harley race you know you throw out his his drop to dusty and the annual ones to baba and tommy rich you got a four years where he's he's the man you know um which kind of puts him in the same not quite territory as flair because flares did go longer i mean fez fez went around during you know i think it was during his longest run and he went and kind of gobbled up a few of the remaining world title claimants you know like Unified in the Baron Michelle Leone claim in, in California. Um, some of those other minor ones, um, like the M as in Monkey WA, that I think still exists at that time. Um, he might have, I don't know if he took, uh, took in the Boston world title, the other AWA, or there was a Montreal world championships, you know. So he kind of, you could say he cleaned up the world title picture. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it comes to, and it comes down to, I think him probably Flair or Harley, and I'm probably underrating Dory Funk a little bit, but if you, yeah, if you go to this website, it just goes by year, all the title defenses in a year. And I mean, it, 
it's pretty amazing. I'm just like looking at 1980 right now and, uh, you know, Harley race and where he's going and stuff. And obviously this is just what's known, what they have recorded. Certainly not all encompassing. Um, and I think one of the cool things too, around that time was that, you know, and, and this is in say the Backlund era for, for WWF, they would do interpromotional types of world title versus world title. Like there's more than one, right? Um, your world champion versus my world champion. So Backlund would travel, you know, superstar Graham kind of started that trend. I, I, and, uh, but Backlund would, would fight race race came into the garden for a match um, and race defended outside the WWF territory uh, several times. Um, so that was kind of cool too, to, to see that happen in that era. Yeah, I mean, Backlund had the unification matches. He had one with uh, Bachwinkle in Toronto, Flair in, in, in Atlanta, and then he did the Home and Away series with, with Race in St. Louis and MSG. But yeah, Superstar, I think, started that for with Race. I don't think there was any in the WWF before that. Yeah, I think they, because they, he went out, I, I know he, he, he defended, uh, Graham did in, in Florida. I think he was mm -hmm. out in St. Louis as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so there were definitely some, some uh, journeying out of the comfort zone uh, at that point for, for the, the champs. And Backlund defended against Inoki in Miami once, and that's one of their kind of better matches too. But we're getting off the NWA subject here. But I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's tough. Because NWA is really what you think of when you think of a, a traveling world champion hitting all the different territories, you know, going to some of these, you know, I, I don't know how big Macon, Georgia is, but when I look at this list and see, you know, somebody defended the, the title in, in Marshalltown, Iowa, I know how big Marshalltown is, or I know how big Dubuque is, and I see Flair's first title defense was a draw against Harley Race in Des Moines, Iowa, so that's kind of cool, you know. Um, Whereas, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't think Thez liked going to some of those smaller towns. He thought it kind of belittled the title. So again, maybe, maybe we need to research this more <laughs> for a final verdict for next week. But yeah, I, I think it would come down to probably Flair, Harley, or Thez. And I really, they all faced a wide variety of opponents just looking at this list and everything. Yeah, and they were good. I mean, Thez was good too, working subtle heel. Because you mm -hmm. had fantastic it at it, yeah. Because you, you would go into these towns and the flair and flair and race were the best at it, probably just because they've worked both sides of the fence. But when you go into these towns, you're defending against whoever the promoter's guy is. So could be a babyface, could be a heel. If it's a it's a babyface, you got to work heel. If it's a heel, you got to kind of be the babyface uh, while still being the champion and wrestling like a world champion. So uh, I think the the three guys that that Chad picked. I mean, I think they probably did the, the best job of it. I think your your runners up were probably like your Dory Funks and your your Briscoes and Kaniskis and those types of, of guys. But um, yeah, I think those are probably your 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 top three finalists. There's a good thread over on the sports and wrestling message board. I'm pretty sure um, uh, Pete Fusco is a member over there too. And it's they started thread a, a year in the life in the NWA World Champion 1969, and they kind of went through all the shows with all the title defenses. And you know, if it's a double shot, they let you know that. Um, this list over on the wrestling title site, you know, eliminates the rest of the show. But like just looking at this, you know, in, in 1980, you got Flair 
doing a double shot and he fights Ivan Koloff in the afternoon in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then that night in Greensboro, he fights Ole Anderson in a cage. And it's it's November 26th, so maybe it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then the 29th, he fights uh, Ray Stevens in Charlotte. And then that night, he fights Ole Anderson in a cage in Greenville, South Carolina. You know? So I think probably for the double shots, it's probably going to come down to race and flair. I think flair's probably a little more known for it. But looking at Harley's stuff, he's he's doing it more, too. Yeah, this guy's lived and breathed that. Um, and I, grow, growing up for me, would for many years it would have been Flair, and I think I've become, to some degree, maybe burned out on Flair because now it, we didn't have growing up comp tapes of Flair, twenty straight matches that you could watch, and you would see that he would be repetitive. Uh, you would see that he would be thrown over the turnbuckle and do that spot. He'd do the pratfall in the middle of the ring. He would do these spots. And it, it did get repetitive, and that was the kind of the knock against him. But, I mean, when he wanted to, and certainly when he was younger, he could put a match together just as, as good as anybody who's ever done it. Uh, and the, the expression Flair could have a match or a great match with a broomstick is, is true. He could. So Flair's still up there for me. I would probably say is a bit of a wild card. Jack Briscoe would be my my choice only because the matches or the series with Funk to me elevated that title to what it to the probably the highest it could be short of Fez in terms of uh, really presenting the title as a genuine wrestling world heavyweight championship. Um, I mean, they were they were experts who watched Funk and Briscoe and said, guys, that if that if that's not real, I don't know what is. Uh, in terms of watching those matches and you know they were pretty snug you didn't see a whole lot of daylight and they were wrestling matches and I, I think it really he served to elevate that title both with his, his amateur background and just the way they presented things with him and not every match I know that but uh, certainly that funk feud for as many years as they did that served to elevate that title to a pretty high stratosphere at that particular time. Corey you have any thoughts we've I've kind of blown right past you there. My apologies, okay. sir. No, no worries. No, I mean, and you know, I mean, I'd probably have to go between Flair and Race. And I, as Chad was talking about this wrestling titles uh, history site with um, with the results. I mean, I've been reading this as you guys have been talking, and it's amazing to see you know not only the the double shots and things like that, but the types of opponents that Race and Flair would defend against. I mean, these. And I'm, I'm not trying to insult anybody ever involved in wrestling, but it, you know, it's kind of guys you don't think of as main eventers going for the world title. Um, and, you know, they made it work. And then Chad alluded to these small towns as well, or, or places I've never heard of. I saw Garden City, Kansas, that Harley Race uh, defended against, um, I think it was Bob Brown, Bulldog Bob Brown. Um, again, not, not often the guy you think of as a, NWA world title contender. Um, no offense to Bulldog Bob Brown, but uh, and just and just you know, uh, um, I see Big Daddy Ritter, which was Junkyard Dog early early in his career. You know that that's something to that's something. And um, so I think the one thing that puts R race, Rufus R. Jones, baby, Rufus R. Jones, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh Rufus. You know, when um, you say pro wrestling here in central Iowa, you know, because Corey and I grew up in northern Iowa, yeah. where it was AWA territory, but down here, and it's only two hours away, yeah. it's not the deep south or anything, but you say pro wrestling, 
the names that come up are are Bruiser Brody, Harley Race, Bulldog Bob Brown, and Rufus R. Jones. Yeah, people yep. people love their Central States wrestling down here because yes. you know they ran monthly in Des Moines, and then they do spot shows in, in Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, and and Dubuque. Um, it was kind of interesting how the AWA wrapped around the sides of Iowa. Yeah. And then, you know, central states kind of came up the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great, great point. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would probably, if I have to make a choice between race and flair, part of me kind of pushes for race just because I think in a lot of ways he was a little more selfish and in a good way as far as you know not doing as many jobs uh non-title jobs i mean obviously he did one it did some the the david von erich angle in st louis where where david was just starting out and and uh race put him over made him a huge star in st louis um but you know flair was always kind of known as the the world champion with the most losses uh he put over a guy like a ricky morton or a, you know somebody like that who you long term you don't think of it at the same level, but he he wanted to give guys that opportunity, and um, so I think I think uh, I probably have to push for a race. You know, seven seven or eight time champ, depending which which international uh, title switches you count, and uh, just for that time. And his reigns weren't that long, but you look at the time frame that he covered from about seventy. Let's see, seventy two. Um, let's see, yeah, seventy three was his first win up till 83. I mean, that's a 10 year period. And that's a hot time in wrestling, territorially speaking, a lot of talent coming up and coming through. And the NWA, you know, could have voted for a lot of guys, but he was the the regular guy getting the vote back, you know, even if a Dusty or somebody like that was getting a short reign or giant Baba in Japan, it always bounced back to race. And uh, he was just, he was a dependable champion. I'm going to put us down as a pseudo consensus of, or a tie between Flair and Race for greatest NWA champion, and I, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, I don't think anybody would, but so, but I, I just in in going around the uh, this panel of experts, it's, it's sounding like that's a that's a pretty dead heat between those two. And when you look at it, they both had close to yes, with some interruptions, but close to. 10-year runs uh, for each one, and that's yeah. pretty remarkable in this business. And I think Fez is close, too. I mean, it's yeah. not like he's a he's a distant third or anything like that. I mean, as far as bringing credibility to the belt and really establishing everything once the NWA was first formed uh, in 1948 in um, – where were they formed again, Chad? <laughs> Waterloo, Iowa, at the Presidential Hotel. Ah. Woo! When I was uh, – when it's I, like I wasn't. It's almost like I was there. Oh, yes. wait, I, I wasn't we there in 1948, there. but I, I, I've actually been there. We we went on a tour of that with Adam Pierce, which was pretty damn cool. We did. That was that was a damn cool thing. Yeah. Uh, when I had lunch with T Bold a couple of weeks ago, I was driving him back to his house, and I go, "Have you ever?" I go, "Have you ever been by the Presidential Hotel where the NWA is?" He's like, "What? No." We were trying to go there, but then there was freaking Waterloo Irish Fest had all the streets blocked off. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that was about, but um. Yeah, I guess I would like to maybe research Thez as I'm kind of going to that page right now and looking at it. I mean, he he's it's getting a around good too. Run. Yeah, yeah, we might have to we but might have to pretty, come back to this next week. He had a he had a pretty hectic travel schedule too. I mean, he, he did. You know, I yeah. mean, as did the other guys as well. But I mean, his was kind of in a different era. Yeah. Well, I saw I saw um, one result where Flair fought 
Greg Valentine, I think in South Carolina. Then the same day he goes up and does an evening show with Valentine in Toronto. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a wonder they're all alive. Yeah. It's just remarkable. But then the got Thez in, in 1949 uh, doing a shot in Cincinnati on the 21st and the 28th of April against Jack Kennedy. Was that JFK? Was he a wrestler before? No? I don't know. In, the, in the vein of uh, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. Mm. <laughs> Fresh off of his PT-109. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we need to look at this. I mean, this is looking pretty darn good. All right. Well, let's table that and come back to it next week. And uh, promoters, certainly, and we'll encourage us at the end, let us know your thoughts, too. Love to hear what you... Who you think is the greatest of all time in the WWF, the NWA, and then last but not least, the last four hours of the show today are going to be devoted to the AWA, the preeminent wrestling organization. Did I say four hours? The preeminent wrestling wrestling organization in the United States. Um, The AWA had, let's see, we're talking essentially Vern and Bach. Am I missing anybody? Martell had a decent run i mean martell's run was about a year and nine months eight months okay. um i mean mad dog vashan had a had a couple yeah. of good reigns in there but you know when you i mean when you think awa it's really it's it, it's Vern and bach you know um i don't think people always um think of uh mad dog as that long reign of it having that long of a reign, but I'm pulling that information up right now as we speak. Um, yeah, it, it's Vern and Bach, just by the, the number. The number of reigns for Vern, because he was 11-time champion, but for Bach, I, I think it's really the length of his reigns, because Vern yeah. really dropped it a lot. He dominated the belt for the first 15 years, but he also dropped it a lot. He did a lot of kind of, not quickie switches sometimes, um, but yeah, I, I feel like I gotta get my AW history up here. Well, I, I've got a couple of pages up, but I mean, you know, Please. I look, yeah, Bachwinkle, yeah, Bachwinkle's first reign was uh from uh 75 uh until right. 80, so I mean, that's you know, a little, about four and a half years, and um, I mean, that was just a, a uh, on a tremendous reign. I've been pulling up a few pages again from the same site and um again kind of like talking about race and flair i mean some of the guys he defended against i mean chris taylor in esterville iowa two days after winning the belt holy um, cow that would wow. be a horrible match yeah yeah um <laughs> pampero furpo in omaha now this would be pampero later in his career yeah <laughs> uh, there, there's a match you can redo promoters um uh joe laduke in atlanta i mean bachwinkle really traveled a lot he, we he did to go to houston um, you know, there's a, there's video of him against JYD, uh, mm-hmm. for the belt or, or, um, uh, another one with Brody where Luthez is the referee. So, um, you know, he I mean, would be in Toronto a lot too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Toronto. Yep. He was still, he went to mid, he did a tour in mid Atlantic. He, mm-hmm. he would go down to Florida, defended. And I also, him and Stevens, um, defended the tag belts in florida yeah obviously memphis was like kind of a second home and part mm-hmm. of that was because the awa's limited travel schedule you know i think yeah. the knock against Vern is that he was champion for a long time but he didn't he didn't wrestle that often 
Right. Like the tag team titles were defended a lot more often than than the world heavyweight title. You know, he'd do his once every 30 days defense type thing. Um, but you know, he was the promoter. He didn't, he made it more of an event, and then they'd raise the ticket prices by a buck or two for you know championship match prices. Yep. Um, and, and he could get away with that. Whereas Bach and sat downtime where the AWE didn't run as much, he'd go out to other territories and and, you know, do this thing there, earn some money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bach, I mean, you know, as Chad said, there were times, especially summer, it's um, kind of what Tim was alluding to with New York. Minnesotans love their summers because it's not snowing. And uh, a lot of times the AWA wouldn't run as much in the summer. Um, they'd take lar- long chunks off. So, um, you know, he could be going out and touring then. You know, there's there's been reports that Bach was offered the NWA title at some point in the 70s. Um, but he kind of did the math and realized he the what he would make as NWA champion for a lot more traveling, a lot more days on the road, wasn't that much more than what he was making as the AWA champion doing kind of his touring schedule. Uh, so he was, you know, he could have been been on the NWA list as well, but he he chose not to. So I think that just really shows the level of AWA champion he was, and and of course what a smart man he was. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I have gained such an appreciation for him over time, if for no other reason than the how adaptable he was. I mean, he yeah. could he could wrestle so many different styles of opponents. I mean, his mm-hmm. he could wrestle a, a Vern Gagne, and then he could wrestle Jerry Lawler, and yeah. both matches could be classics in their own right. I mean, the stuff he did against Lawler is fantastic. I, I highly recommend that. Uh, it's um, to this day, longtime Memphis t- fans talk about that as if it was just the greatest thing they ever saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I would give him, I have seen young Vern, I have seen old Vern, I've not seen a lot of middle Vern, if you will. So, uh, but I mean, I guess I, I got a, enough appreciation of his style. I'd give it to Bach. I mean, I just, I, I think that guy was an incredible talent. He mm-hmm. really, really was. Um, and I, I wish that I'd been around to see him uh, in his prime um, when it was occurring, but I, we just didn't hear much about him other than what you could see in the after mags. Uh, that was the uh, that was the issue I had too with him was that you know I was I, I, my first exposure to Bachwinkle was later in his career when you know he looked like he was a little even though he could still go like a 25 year old I mean he looked a little bit longer in the tooth and. And you were just wondering, it's like, well, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look like a, you know, I mean, he still had a great, you know, he was in great shape, but he just didn't look like, you know, the, the, the young stallion that you would think would be out there, you know, going 40 minutes a night. And um, so that always kind of pushed him behind for me. But then once I started, you know, once video started all that, and you're able to see him and you really gain an appreciation, especially from his interviews and how he was more of a sedate interview and how he carried the title. Uh, you really do gain a, a great appreciation for him. I mean, just a, uh, just an amazing talent and just such a, I mean, they, those two guys, I mean, Vern and, and Nick were just like linked forever because they were the guys that, you know, they were the most credible challenger when the other one was the champion. Thank you, Tim. Um, any other thoughts on AWA, the two kings of the AWA, Vern versus Bach? Or are we? Bachwinkle is the greatest champion of all. 
of I ever. I think I'm going with that too. It's just I, that, I, I, uh, I think I would only because I, I just didn't see enough of Ganya when he was real, like like Stu was saying. You know, you don't you don't really have the stuff when he was in his prime, when he was like the U.S. champ and he was touring and he was a, a huge television attraction back when he started his career. Um, you know, you just don't have enough of that to kind of go on. I mean, you might have records and you might have some of that, but it, it's a it's a tough call. But boy, Bach was just just stellar in the ring. Agreed. So the last uh, question or or topic of discussion, if we will, around this, uh, and just to recap, we we kind of have a consensus of Bruno for the WWF. A tie at the moment to be uh, to which will remain to be seen by next week. Tie between the moment between Flair and Race with Thez uh, coming on strong as the greatest in the NWA, and then Nick Bockwinkel in the AWA. The the last question revolving around this topic is: Could this model work again? Um, you you are seeing uh, I, just AEW. I think they've had what three world champs. Jericho held it the first year maybe and then moxley held it for a decent amount of time and omegas held it a decent amount of time we're not talking four or five year runs but it's it's certainly longer than the attitude era when the thing was a hot potato um could this model work again could you see a, a champion defending a la bruno bachwinkle all the gentlemen that we've been talking about and main and holding on to the belt that long or is that has that ship sailed I just put that out there for general conversation. Corey, you had your hand up, sir. I definitely think you could do it again. You know, I'm not saying seven years like Bruno, but two years, three years. I mean, uh, I, I was kind of thinking back. Um, CM Punk had that long run from 2011 to 2013. And, um, you know, I've in, I don't think that was, from what I recall, that wasn't the plan for him to go that long. It just kind of worked out that way. And I'm really impressed that they, let him hold it as long as they did and obviously he wasn't quite pushed as dominantly as some of these other guys but it it still kind of meant something it was a big deal to go that long in, in this day and age and um i i do i do like that AEW, kind of with all their titles from what i see they do try to make their champions a little bit more long term and um i think you can do it you know i think i think you can do even if if promotions aren't doing a house show model or a regular house show tour they're kind of obviously kind of getting into that get, getting back into that now but i think with all the television content out there you could do you know have your champion defend whether it's peacock pay-per-view television special whatever the format is say every six weeks and and or whatever it is and then set up challengers and um and do these long runs i i definitely think you can do it i think you can do rematches without switching the belt you know that seems to be the kind of lazy thing that wwe does to to do the rematches is give the guy the belt for a month or so um but you know if you have to do a, a dq finish or a controversial finish or heaven forbid a time limit draw you know <laughs> it would be there there are ways you can do that and and not have to switch the belt so often so on I definitely think it could come back, and I, I hope to see some longer reigns here. Me too, Corey. Chad, what are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, I would kind of argue that WWE is doing that lately. I mean, I just looked up on, on the wiki and Roman Reigns is at 375 days for True. being the, the universal champion. And then mm. even Bobby Lashley is at uh, 191 days, apparently. So yeah. he won it last March. But wow. Um, and I really think with Roman, it shows, you know, he's yeah, he, he is pretty protected or not protected that's the wrong word but you know he's just he's carrying that title and it really makes you look forward to the matches you know like with with brock because who is gonna win you know and if roman Mm. to me if roman beats brock that really cements him as the Mm. guy going forward um and it kills his demon too you know with brock yeah and and, you know i know it was posted i don't know what was what was between now and attitude era was that ruthless aggression or, you know, you yeah. kind of chuckle how John Cena is even in the same uh, atmosphere of breaking Ric Flair's title, you know, where Ric Flair won him over 20, 25 years and Cena won him in a short, and I'm not, I'm not pissing on John Cena. I think John Cena is great. You know, I just, it's crazy that he racked up that many title reigns that fast when they were doing like the back and forth between pay-per-views uh, that Corey mentioned, I, th- I think they've, I think they've gotten better at it in WWE yeah. as well. Um, and, you know, it seems like AEW is doing the same thing. Obviously they're a lot newer, um, but they, I, I think it's good. And I, it's never going to be like it was wrestling will never, there's never going to be a territory system again. There's never, none of that's going to happen folks. But I think having at least long-term champions does make those titles more important. And I would, uh, you know, Agreed. I would, I would echo that. I think if you've got the right people, I think you can do it. If you don't, I, I think it's difficult, and especially in the the world today, there's a, you know, you want to see the title change, you know, and and so uh, between you know the attention spans, and it's like, oh, that guy's still champion. It's like, you know, instead of being a good thing, now it becomes a bad thing. Um, and I was going to bring up Lesnar and Reigns, actually, is, is kind of examples of if you've got the right person, because who the hell is going to beat Brock Lesnar? I mean, that, we're going back to the you know, WWF uh, kind of model as, as having that dominant champion, whether it's a heel or a face, and you just feed the guy. But, I mean, they're doing a great job of that with Reigns. Um, you know, they did a great job of it with Lesnar. I wanted to see Brock, Brock Lesnar fight. You know, they, they did a good job building up somebody as being somewhat credible and then just would have Brock eat him, eat him for breakfast. But, um, and I, I think AEW, again, with Omega's trying to, trying to put something like that together and trying to do something along those lines. Um, I don't know. I, like, like Corey was saying, I don't think you're going to see, you know, a four-year title reign um, anymore because I just, I, I don't know if, there will be the influx of, of talent due to not having a territory system where you can get fresh people in or you're just recycling matches that have already been done. So I, I don't think you're going to see another four-year, five-year, six-year title reign. Um, but as far as like two years, I mean, I think that's doable. I, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's out of the realm of possibility. And you know, you do a good job of establishing it as a big deal when somebody beats that person then and it kind of helps make them just like, you know, Ivan Koloff was pretty much made for his career the night that he beat Bruno. So, um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's possible. I, I'm not I'm not sure it'll happen, uh, but I think you know if you've got the right champions and the right challengers, I, I definitely think it's a possibility. And I would say too that Brock has kind of gotten that level by just the length of his title reigns. I was just kind of looking at Wiki and those. I mean, he's got between all the various titles, he's he's gotten some certainly lengthy runs and has about three three solid years, not solid, not consecutive, but three years as champion. If you add up all his cumulative reigns, and I'm probably missing one or two because um, it was really quick math. But uh, as we know, math is not my strong suit. We, we, we've learned that in the past. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right here on this show. Excellent points, gentlemen. Great discussion. And again, promoters, we would love to hear from you. Uh, your picks is your personal greatest of all time with each promotion or greatest of all time for all promotions. Uh, these kinds of discussions are great for bur- virtual barstool chatting and uh, in any sport. And certainly wrestling is, uh, is wrestling is right along there with them in terms of lending itself to these types of discussions, even with a worked sport. And with that, we have uh, just about come to the end of the road for this particular episode. And as is our tradition, we're going to go around each team member and do our shout outs for the evening. So we're going to start with Tim. Take it away, sir. I got nothing, Stu. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> just, just again, you know, thank, thanks to everybody for listening. I re- greatly appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be uh, rolling toward the uh, episode 52 here down the road. And um, uh, just want to, want to again, uh, you know, just appreciate everybody for tuning in and, and uh, all the, all the other, folks that are out there that have either uh, started or been continuing podcasts along the road to um, always fun to kind of hear their content as well. So uh, take it easy, everybody. And we'll, uh, we'll talk next week. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Corey next. Thanks, Stu. Uh, As Tim mentioned, I want to give some shout outs to our fellow content providers uh sam uh, mike and todd over at roll up the official podcast as we record i just noticed that they dropped their latest episode uh a day earlier than usual and i think they're doing a special pre-order bonus show this friday night as well so you can check that out uh thanks as always to grant pachoco at the phil singer games fan podcast and thank you grant for sending in questions tonight really great questions um i got to watch grant's show on youtube live as he did it last friday night uh, for the first time for me and that was a lot of fun to, to see that, to get the video uh, as well as the audio. So thanks for putting out great shows, Grant. Uh, also want to give attention to, excuse me, Dave Little at Heartland Championship Wrestling, Steve Tower at After Further Review, um, Lee Longfrey at the Dizzy Dice Podcast, and Brock Atkinson with his New Dimension Wrestling on Twitch and YouTube. So thanks, everybody, uh, for continuing to provide so much great Phil Smear Games-related content. And uh, just always, thanks everybody uh, for listening. Thanks for providing comments on the board. I won't take that away from Chad, but uh, uh, just thanks everybody for continuing to support us. Thank you, Corey. Appreciate that. Chad. So um, first off, we want to say best wishes to Sam Luptick. Um, His father passed away recently, and I know they're running a, a, a GoFundMe to help with maybe some of the funeral expenses. So if you're so moved, um, you know, please consider contributing to that. Um, but regardless, best wishes to Sam. We're all thinking of you. Um, and you know what, folks? I have to admit, over the past few months, I've gotten complacent. 
and gotten lazy and hadn't given shout outs to everybody who commented each week. And Matt Dickendesher struck a nerve when he said he's missed having his name called out. So back by popular or unpopular demand, I'd like to thank everyone who commented on our last thread, Travis 605, Kevin the Butcher, Matt Dickendesher, Grant, Zeke, L.A. Rath, Pete Fusco, Troy, Derek VB. Thank you also, Derek, for the roster list. Derek has provided me black and white and color rosters. We're going to have some awesome counting. I might get an abacus. Uh, Tournament Master, J-Row 7, The Faction, and Sinestro 24. I don't know Sinestro 1 through 23, but number 24. I've heard they're all nice people. Thanks for commenting. And, and Sinestro has the best uh, avatar with a picture of Dr. Tweed from Grunt the Wrestling Movie. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I don't think I've noticed that. And I just want to thank everybody who, again, it takes time to listen. I hope you all stay safe. Um, oh, one other thing that's going to rock Central Iowa. Well, two things. Saturday. September 11th, not only is Impact Pro Wrestling foolishly running downtown Des Moines, Iowa at the Forte Dome against Alan Jackson concert up the street and the Iowa-Iowa State game, which will be taking place, but the Iowa-Iowa State game will be taking place in Ames, Iowa, number nine at Iowa State, woo, versus number 10, Iowa. ESPN game day is going to be there. I am a scant six miles from the stadium, and I am getting nowhere close to that thing because it is going to be crazy. So, good luck, Iowa State. If Iowa wins, that's fine, too. But go Cyclones. And, Stuart, I might have a little surprise for you on next week's show. That's all I got to say. A tease like that. I got to be here. (laughs) You're not going to be able to sleep for a whole week. No, no, literally, you need to be here. You you do need to be here. I have to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really much of an option, so. No, it's not. All right. Well, that is that is an excellent tease. The only thing I would like to add is I've had since we've been taping this particular show three mark out moments because I've had AEW uh, Dynamite on in the background. Moment number one was uh, seeing Adam Cole come out. That's pretty darn cool to see him on AEW. Moment number two and the biggest mark out moment I've had is seeing Brian Danielson coming out on into an AEW ring. I did not catch him. Uh, I did not catch either one of them live in terms of All Out and their debuts in AEW Squared Circle. And the third one is that Mark, John Moxley versus Minoru Suzuki is the main event. <laughs> that is just crazy. Uh, on American television, watching that, Corey had mentioned earlier it was strange seeing Suzuki at a card in North Dakota, was it? Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't think we mentioned that in the recording, so I'll just say, yeah, in October, Minoru Suzuki is wrestling Dominic Garini, formerly of the Evolve set, uh, in North Dakota. Um, I, I saw the poster on Facebook, thought it was a joke, but it turns out it, this is a legitimate match that's going to take place. So if you're around the North Dakota, even Western Minnesota, South Dakota area, you know, uh, I, I, I can't make it, but uh, if you can make it, get check that match out. Probably one of the few times anyone in that area will have a chance to see Minoru Suzuki. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly live. So I heard he frequents North Dakota. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Uh, the, uh, the all of that is to say that I I started watching AEW from the beginning. To me, they've been they've been a lot of fun. They've been a little uneven, but uh, you know, in general, uh, they had arguably their their best. Certainly from a 
artistic standpoint, their best pay-per-view a couple of days ago and all out. And I, for one, am very happy to see it because I, I just, I think competition is very good for the wrestling business. And it's been far too long without having a prominent number two uh, organization in this country. And it is good to see it. And with that, unless you find gentlemen have anything else, I will say good night, Denmark, and we will see you next week on Uncharted Territory. Good night, everybody. Hey, promoters, it's Corey again. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, or topic suggestions for Uncharted Territory, please leave us an audio message. You can go to anchor.fm backslash Corey hyphen Olson five. That's C-O-R-Y hyphen O-L-S-O-N, the number five. Click the message button and record a one minute message. Or you can email your question or audio question to our email address, utpodcast2020 at gmail.com. That's utpodcast and the numbers 2020 at gmail.com. We might include your content in a future episode of Uncharted Territory. So I'm sorry I was late. Here's what happened. Corey, this might be a good Easter egg. So I'm looking at Facebook after dinner, and I see Mrs. Gallahan, the neighbor up the street. She has this beautiful, giant, great dame named Ella. And recently she started fostering another great dame named Hank. They're huge dogs. She is a very small, petite grandma type woman. And she said Hank saw rat. She was walking them both. So that's mistake number one. And she admitted that. And Hank saw a rabbit, took off, it drug her down, and she lost one of her hearing aids. So Card and I went up there, and I got this what? big, I got it, yeah, exactly. I got this big magnet on a stick. So I'm like sweeping her ground, and one of her, uh, our other neighbors was out there with his metal detector, but there's too much, it's by this uh, century length junction box, so there's too much wires in there. But my magnet did pick up her other hearing aids. So Carter and I were in the grass looking and looking and looking. Couldn't find it. So that's why I was late. I apologize, but I was trying to do a good deed. Uh, Corey, are you done printing? <laughs> Corey is not done printing. So we're going to go. <laughs> Our, Corey's now printing a state of Minnesota taxes right now. And he's also 3D printing a burrito. He said he was hungry. So he dumped, I saw him dump a can of Pinto beans into his printer and we'll see what happens. Does anybody understand? I don't get, how do 3D printers work? Like no clue. They, they just print shit and then it works, but it's like, I don't get it. What are they printing it out of? Can you print your Remco figures from a 3D oh printer? Oh my God. I don't know. Ooh, Corey, Tim, cool? Tim, you're our technology expert. How does a 3D printer work? Or in your case, a 3D printer flip phone work? <laughs> So what you do is you, you you get some stuff and you get some nails and some duct tape and a hammer uh -huh. and you kind of you kind of put it together and yeah. while you're doing it you go and and that's your 3D printer and that's that that's how it works. It's, it's I think you architecture were, uh, made easy. 
I think you this were, was brought to you by Red Green. <laughs> you were one zip short on that, Tim, but otherwise I think you nailed it. 